Listeners, welcome back to what we've been watching. Thank you for bearing with us while we took our mini break last week. Hope you enjoyed those movie recommendations. Let us know if you watch them. Yeah, do. You can email us in. Um, but this week we've got some more new films to review, old films to talk about. <laughs> Good work, Phil. That's right. Four movie reviews back in action. I'm Laurie. I'm Phil. My two movies this week are going to be Rashomon, director Akira Kurosawa's acclaimed sort of burst onto the cinema scene. I'm going to be doing Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino's absolute classic. Yep. Saw this one at the Ultimate Picture Palace. They were doing a fantastic little uh, series of critics' chosen films and why those films are important. They did a little Q&A. James Luxford, the BBC Oxford mm. film guy. Friend of ours, yeah. He, he selected Pulp Fiction and I went along to see it. It was great seeing it on the big screen. Okay, and my second is A Late Quartet, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman and Catherine Keener and also Christopher Walken. Big cast. Oh, interesting, interesting. Well, I'm going to round out the films with Lethal Weapon. That's your <laughs> the fourth and final. Yeah, fourth and final. Mel Gibson, Danny Glover. That's all you need to know, really. Yeah. Okay, now we've also got a few emails that people have been sending us, which we're going to read out quickly here. This is actually a tweet from Nicholas. He says, at Superbelly Bros, Tintin was easily an A-plus when I saw it on its release, so minus two for both of you. Oh, dear. Although maybe I am biased being French. Must rewatch. Mm, mm. I did. Well, I mean, I did rewatch it. That's why I talked about it on what we've been watching. I have to disagree, man. I'm glad you enjoyed it, but it just didn't work for me. Yeah, I'm afraid, Nicholas, I have to agree with Phil there. We both weren't fans, and I, I, the second time I saw it, I didn't like it either. So if you do watch it again, tell us your thoughts. And one here from Alistair, he got in touch and said... At Super Betty Bros, here's a good mix for your next, what we've been watching. Buried, starring Ryan Reynolds. I've seen that one. Mm-hmm. License to Kill, 007. Temple of Doom, mm. Steve Jobs. Ooh, that's a really good, interesting mix. I'd be up for actually doing that as a, as a week. Oh, really? I was going to say, we probably wouldn't do all four in one episode. I don't know. I think we could do. It'd be an interesting one. I've got Steve Jobs. I bought the DVD. I've seen it. Oh, you've already seen that one. I've seen Steve Jobs and Buried. Who is which uh, James Bond is that? Honestly, I can't remember. But I mean, maybe I should watch that one based on your review of From Russia with Love. <laughs> what you say? My review is brilliant. <laughs> uh, there we go. And listeners, do feel free to do that. If there's films you'd love us to review, just let us know. And a final one here from Confucius, describing himself as the wise man from the East. He says, thoroughly enjoyed your special extended edition of what we've been watching with Sam. Plus two to Sam. And then plus two to Lauren Phil also. <laughs> oh, right. You. Pluses all around. We should say plus and plus ones and minus ones are when you agree or disagree with us, of course. Yeah, it's a little competition we like to have between Lauren and I. <laughs> it gets a bit bitter sometimes. Please, can you watch The Legend of 1900 starring Tim Roth? I think Laurie might like him. I have a feeling that Confucius has been in touch on our other show and spoken about this before. So obviously he's very keen for us to watch it. I will add that to my list. I do like Tim Roth. There you go. So watch out, or listen out really, I should say, for those films. They will be appearing on a, a podcast soon. That's right. And listeners, get in touch. Send your emails to superbaileybros at gmail.com or tweet us at superbaileybros with any films you'd like us to review or your thoughts on the things we say on this show. So should we crack on with this week's show? Let's do it. Do you want to go first? Yeah. Should I start with Pulp Fiction? Do it. Pulp Fiction. Miramax Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, let's get in character. I'm so interested in big man's wife. Well, he's going out of town of Florida and he asked me if I take care of him while he's gone. Take care of him? No, man. Just make sure it's a good time. Make sure she don't get lonely. Girl, you see, 
This is a moral test of oneself. I do believe Marcel, as my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. I love you so much, can't count on Whether or not you can maintain loyalty. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts, it never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, play the matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns for this kind of a deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that night. Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Well, there you go. I'm sure for lots of listeners, this film will need no introduction whatsoever. But mm. for those of you who maybe haven't ever come across Pulp Fiction, this is the film that really made Quentin Tarantino uh, a household name as this extraordinary director, a very unique director. This is his uh, sort of almost magnum opus, I would say, on crime uh, in L.A. Uh, and it follows various different threads and narratives shot in a non-chronological order. And it follows various characters as they pursue sort of slightly odd, bizarre escapades. I have to say, this film has always been, in my mind, the gateway to being serious about watching movies. I think ever since I was a kid and I heard other kids talking about it on the playground or heard adults mention it with sort of reverential tones, I thought, now that film is a pinnacle of something, but I don't know what. (laughs) And I admit, when I finally saw it, I did think, whoa, I've, I've not really seen a film like this before. Yeah, it's a very unique film because it unapologetically doesn't follow the rules. It, it does its own thing. Quentin Tarantino creates this sort of bizarre world where, which is all about the sort of seedy underbelly, the hidden realities of, of life in LA. It's always a bit surprising, always a bit interesting, always a bit quirky. Yeah, and this was a sort of comeback moment for John Travolta as well, wasn't it? Yeah, he plays Vincent Vega, a hitman who is hired by Marcus Wallace, Marcellus Wallace, something like something Wallace or something like that, uh, a crime boss to try and sort out some business. And yeah, he was on the down low. He, he'd done sort of a couple of films which hadn't really done well. And this really, really launched him as a cool guy, as an interesting actor, as a legitimate actor. And he does a really good job in this film. He's really charismatic. He spends a lot of his uh, screen time with uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, also a defining role for him. This sort of has set his mould in movies forever, hasn't it? Everyone wants to cast him as the uh, uncompromising, angry sort of uh, angel of death, I guess. Yeah, in this film he plays Julius and he's got that famous monologue from Ezekiel 25, a a fictional passage from the Bible. Um, Yeah, this film is really difficult to kind of contain and really say what it is because in some ways, the only film which I could really compare it to, and you're probably going to laugh at this, Philip, I'm sure, is Love Actually, because it's got these <laughs> You're not wrong, of... Phil. You're not, I am laughing at you. No. <laughs> but you know why I say it. You know that it's ridiculous. I mean, Richard Curtis and Quentin Tarantino are such similar filmmakers. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> but you know what I mean, because you've got basically a film which isn't really about anyone, but is about everyone. Well, that's just and an they... ensemble cast. There are other films. No, but that. it's all about the idea of these kind of recurring characters popping up in other people's stories. Okay. And there being threads and links and narrative connections but ultimately they're separate stories and that's why I compare it to Love Actually Love Actually is chronological Pulp Fiction completely not chronological and is playing with your ideas and expectations about characters and things like that using that device to kind of unsettle you Um, but like Love Actually there's some parts of the film which I think are fantastic and really interesting and unique and iconic just simply iconic uh, particularly the Samuel Jackson, John Travolta scenes. But then there's some particular scenes that I find really troubling. I just, it just, I don't want to deal with that. Beeps you out. Yeah, there's a particular scene with you Bruce Willis. You must be Willis. thinking about the basement. Yeah, the basement. I don't want to go into details because I think it's just thoroughly unpleasant. And it's that's the sort of thing which I think 
is what Quentin Tarantino's got a reputation for. That's the sort of scene where he pushes it to a dark place, a nasty place. He knows how to make his mark, doesn't he? Yeah, and the thing is, that scene really is gripping and effective. It works, but it's just such an unpleasant place to go and i and i can never really work out if it's meant to be sort of scary or funny or, or what really that particular scene well that element and another thing as well are what are most commonly talked about in my opinion that this seems to be the, the major impacts the movie had on the industry at large was that kind of scene which is sort of absurd and grotesque as well it almost like you say is comedic because it's so dark in its themes and in the way that it gets dealt with but also the writing as well I mean people talk about that mac and cheese scene in the car Royale with cheese yeah and it appears to literally have changed the boundaries of what is acceptable in film dialogue and I think that's really where the film excels is because it takes these this really mundane attitude to life and and sort of these casual conversations you have with friends and uses that to establish character and uses it as a really natural way to embed exposition and world building and all sorts and it really plays an effective role, particularly in Vincent Vega and Julius's storyline, because they are constantly chatting about really mundane things while they go about business as hitmen and doing these sort of obscene, horrible acts. And yet they're just casually going about their day and chatting and things. And it really gives a stark contrast. And I think Quentin Tarantino always makes films with really um, intense juxtaposition. You've got these odd choices of songs which really uh, conflict and put into relief the drama and the intensity of the scenes that they're used in. And I think you can see completely from this film why he's gained the reputation he has, why he's been a successful filmmaker, and why people continue watching his movies. I think he occupies a similar space to the Coen brothers as well. And interestingly, both their careers, I suppose, kind of took off around the same sort of time, didn't it? Their rise was nearly parallel. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so, roughly, yeah. But something else I'd throw at it now is that they're both still making movies. And I wonder whether Hollywood only has capacity to serve one Quentin Tarantino and one Coen Brothers. I don't see... Yeah, Hollywood's not going to make more room for films of this kind. Do you agree? I mean, this is why... We, we've talked about this on the podcast, talking about the Oscars. Harvey Weinstein, the guy who was behind Miramax with his brother, they were the guys who were pushing and championing and giving money to these sort of rogue filmmakers who were producing these very unusual films. And Hollywood just doesn't seem to be backing people in the same way but it only takes one kind of crazy producer who will do it then and then suddenly these filmmakers will flourish i think yeah well i guess we'll see any final thoughts on uma thurman and bruce willis and then let's hear a grade uh bruce willis i think is a surprising choice i think most people forget that he's in this movie because it's he's kind of an odd he's an oddly big name for this sort of movie you don't expect him to take this role and yet he does it he plays butch this boxer who kind of uh, he, he takes money to go down in a fight and then decides to go go on the run after not going down and instead knocking the guy out. He plays an interesting character. And then you've got Uma Thurman as uh, Mia, uh, Marcus or Marsalius, Wallace's wife, who Vincent Vega has to take out on a night out. They, of course, have that dining scene where they do a bit of dancing. And it is so cool. Flashback to Boogie Nights, yeah. Apparently, Uma Thurman was like, I'm not sure this is going to work. I'm not sure about the music. And Quinta Tarantino said, no, this is going to work. This is it. And he's right. He completely works. Nice one, man. I'm conscious there's like a lot we could say about that movie, but thank you for the overview. What would you give it grade-wise? I think, surprisingly, watching it back and watching it back on a big screen at the Ultimate Picture Palace in a cinema, 
I was shocked by how some of the filmmaking actually isn't necessarily that technically skilled. Oh, really? But it's quite confident. It's got a lot of style. And so I think kind of overall, with the added fact that I didn't like that basement scene, I think it's probably a B plus for me. Wow, really? I'm which surprised. isn't as high as I think probably lots of people would say. And I think, you know, you're saying how it's a kind of uh, a tipping point for lots of people in liking film. Yeah. Um, I often think it's the sort of thing which an 18-year-old thinks is amazing. <laughs> and then they go on to discover better things, if that makes sense. Well, but Quentin Tarantino doesn't agree with you, Phil, because I reckon he's made the same movie many, many times. That's not quite fair, but he has certainly hasn't outgrown those things. No, but I think for me and I'm, I hopefully for other people as well, I think they've realised that this is uh, a rule-breaking piece of cinema, but there's other films, there's other masterfully crafted films, which perhaps we'll talk about in a second. Well, perhaps, Phil, nice segue. Shall I do my first? Yes. Well, why don't I do Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa? The film that introduced Japanese cinema to the world. One crime. Four versions of the truth. Winner of the Honorary Academy Award Best Foreign Language Film 1951. <laughs> Akira Kurosawa's International Breakthrough. Rashomon. Hmm, you might be surprised to learn that's not actually the original voiceover guy. <laughs> I think the guy was pretty good, though. He was great, Phil. Yeah, absolutely great. Rashomon was the film that really brought Akira Kurosawa's brand of cinema to the Western world, according to their Wikipedia, anyway. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 50s. I can't speak for it. But it gained huge international acclaim and sort of broke rules that hadn't been broken before. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them here because, honestly, I wouldn't do it justice, but there's a lot of blogs out there and articles that will tell you about it. Suffice it to say, it's things like shooting directly into the sunlight, allowing the sun and natural light to play a huge part in the drama, deliberately sequencing shots to portray the structure of relationships and the dynamics of the conflict. All that kind of stuff was really being pioneered uh, and uh, huge influences from silent films and from westerns as well. But it's the kind of classic East meets West uh, of cinematic expectations. Funnily enough, it didn't do that well in Japan when it was released, but it was a huge international hit. So it's one of these films that is a total centrepiece in cinematic history. But how does it rate as a viewing experience? The story is essentially uh, an event that is being told by three people sat under the Rashomon Gate in Kyoto while there's torrential rain. So to, to shelter out the rain, they sit there and they chat to each other. Two of them, a monk and a woodcutter, appear to be quite distraught and in shock over an event that's recently taken place. And the third is just a peasant who also shares the shelter. So they tell their stories to him. And the story is... <laughs> It's quite hard to frame it. They tell the stories of other witnesses telling accounts of a crime that has recently happened. Does that one make sense? crime. That's one crime. Four versions of the truth. Exactly. So Toshiro Mufune, who is a frequent collaborator of Akira Kurosawa's, who I think is fantastic, plays uh, a highwayman, Japanese highwayman called Tajomaru. 
he runs across two people coming through the forest uh, a beautiful lady hidden by a veil on a horse and her samurai husband who is leading her through the forest and to begin with he doesn't think much of it but as he describes it a cool breeze changes his world that day it lifts up the veil on this woman's face and he decides awfully that he can't let this woman go without chasing her down and yeah he claims that he doesn't want to kill this samurai but one thing leads to another and he does kill the samurai um, and has his way with the woman and the question is all about how did it all really take place oddly enough all the people involved in this and that is this criminal the woodcutter who found the body and the wife as well who provides her story <laughs> bizarrely enough the deceased spirit of the samurai they managed to channel through a medium he gives his account none of them say oh, look i didn't do it in fact all of them claim guilt in some way or another and it's a really clever narrative it shows you all these different accounts in flashback form occasionally cutting back to these three guys discussing these events as well and the question is obvious what really happened or in fact what's the nature of truth what's the nature of justice what really matters in this tale and what is the crime or are there several crimes that have taken place it's a really clever format it is based on a short story but if you can place yourself back in 1951 this is pretty revolutionary stuff sounds like a very modern sort of story yeah and i think that's the key thing that strikes you when you watch it it's all shot in black and white and there is very sparing use of music. Um, I was delighted to realise when I was watching it, I thought, oh, that part sounds just like Bolero by Ravel. Do you know what Bolero film? Mm. Da, 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 but it really doesn't feel like a 50s piece of cinema. When you think of the 1950s, what kind of movies do you tend to jump to? Maybe like a kind of dashing detective or something like that. or Like a film noir kind of thing. Yeah, or a gangster sort of movie, or maybe even like a kind of gentlemanly, high society gentlemanly courting or something like that. Yeah, well, seeing it in the rain, of course, yeah, exactly. released one year later. And you've also got a lot of Westerns that were still, you know, big in the cinema at this time. And I think immediately I get a sort of pastely colour palette, very cheesy scores that are melodramatic and huge flourishes and very hammy acting that is full of melodrama. And although there are elements of that here, it is stunning how modern this film feels in its ability to reflect, in its decision to use close-ups and in the clarity of the film stock as well. There's something about it that feels very, very timeless, I think. Sounds amazing. Well, I think it is. You'd certainly have to be patient. There's almost kabuki theatre-esque over-dramatisation of certain behaviour. I know that sounds crazy, doesn't it, the way I said it. What I mean is you get people laughing crazily and acting out their emotions in absolutely unrealistic ways, but it's all part of the drama. And it makes even more sense given the double-framing narrative of the story. These are people recounting... yeah. Exactly. And it, it's just brilliant. It really explores the way that stories work and it explores the way that we interpret the world around us. And it kind of asks that question, you know, if you see the world always through your eyes... Are you ever truly able to appreciate it through another's eyes? And it even leaves, the film ends with a, a, a lasting moral question and a slightly ambiguous decision as well. So 
yeah, for me, I loved it. I'm a big fan of Toshiro Mifune uh, as an actor, especially. I think he's magnificent in Yojimbo and, of course, Seven Samurai. And if you are interested at all in Akira Kurosawa, I highly recommend it. Do you think it's one of his best ones? I think so, yeah. I'd put this um, higher, actually, than many. I, I really love Yojimbo and I love Seven Samurai, but other films like Sanjuro uh, and Throne of Blood, even Akiru, I would put this above all, all of those. A lot also to do with its position in the history of cinema. Wow, there you go. What so, grade? Uh, a from me. Yeah. A, wow, straight in there. There you go. I think give it a go. If you're if you're worried at that idea of a slow-paced Japanese black and white movie, and I'm sure many people are, like I wanted to watch this with Judith on a holiday. She said no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, no um, compromise whatsoever. Just a straight up no. Um, I really recommend giving it a go, seeing what you make of it. Just keep an eye open for all the amazing things that are being done. And it's fair to say Akira Kurosawa has influenced basically all of modern cinema. It's true. He is an absolute legend and this is a good introduction. So, yeah, it's an A. There you go. Right, so your next is Lethal Weapon, yeah? Yeah, Lethal Weapon. He's a criminal's worst nightmare. A cop who enjoys the danger. No guns, no jiu-jitsu, just bring him down. They really want to jump. Well, then that's fine with me. Come on. Wait, I what do you mean? Wait a minute. What the... He was ready to retire. Now, he's gonna wish he had. Gun! Oh! Oh! oh. Raj, meet your new partner. New partner? <laughs> Too old for this. If these guys can just stand each other. What you got in there? Boy and Smith? A lot of old timers carry those. The bad guys don't stand a chance. Don't kill anybody, don't tell anybody. I'm too old for this. Are you as good as you say you are? Nobody can touch me. Suppose we better register you as a lethal weapon. You ever met anybody you didn't kill? Well, I haven't killed you yet. Back to the 80s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this film stars Mel Gibson. It stars Danny Glover as uh, Riggs and Murtagh. Murtagh? Murtagh? Murtagh, I think. Isn't Murtagh? it Murtagh? Murtagh? I don't know. It ends in a GH. Yeah. Soft GH. <laughs> anyway, uh, and this is directed by Richard Donner, the guy who did Superman, and also is written by Shane Black, who recently directed and wrote The Nice Guy, starring yeah, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, he's and- having almost a resurgence yeah, so, so I think he's been making, he's been in the biz for ages and ages and ages. Maybe it's more steady and progress. And he's behind, yeah, he's behind the Lethal Weapon series, which was four films. I've never seen them before. This was the first time I thought, I'm going to check it out. I've enjoyed Shane Black. Let's watch Lethal Weapon. And so this follows, as kind of the trailer said, it follows the partnering, the the initial partnering of Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Danny Glover playing a retired, well, soon to be retired cop. And uh, Mel Gibson playing, well, the titular lethal weapon, uh, a super competent police officer who had some sort of army ties back in the day, who is trained in martial arts. And so he should be registered as a lethal weapon. Classic. Um, and he is he is on the edge of life, really. He is right in the dumps. He's sort of borderline alcoholic, borderline suicidal because his wife has died. And he's, he just cannot imagine a world of going on. And so you've got these sort of a very stable but competent cop meeting a kind of on the edge about to Total sort of... live wire. Yeah, live wire colliding. And Classic that's, buddy. Exactly. And it's and it seems like a cliche, but this is the... Th- I think this is the film that establishes the cliche. It certainly is uh, an archetype of it, yeah. It cements it, I think. Because, well, you know, that Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte 
movie that I can't remember the name of that did it even earlier than this was, yeah, I think they were trying it out in this decade. But then this is the one which has been continuously successful. So obviously there's something here which gets it right. Um, It also stars Gary Busey as this sort of muscle man who is really odd because Gary Busey for me is a a kind of nut, a kind of punchline in Scrubs, in fact. And yet here he plays this sort of muscle man, this really tough guy who's intimidating and he, he does a good job of it. So the two guys are uh, set onto a case because a woman dies and then this leads them kind of on these various little intertwining uh, pieces of information as they try and crack what's going on. Why, where's, why is there sort of drugs in the city? What's the implications? What does it all mean? Is this much bigger than they realise? Have they gotten in too deep? Classic sort of action affair. And uh, there's explosions, there's car chases, there's guns. And it all gets a bit silly towards the end. In a good way, like happy silly? In a in a kind of I could see this being good back in the day way. I don't think it's a particularly good action movie by today's standards, but it has some of the things that you think, oh yeah, this would be exciting, this would be good, and it and it has a real sort of swagger in its delivery. Um, the film is really disjointed though, and actually it seems like budget and money became a bit of an issue because there's a really odd, there's in fact an infamous edit in the film where suddenly towards the end, Mel Gibson just starts fighting a guy with his shirt off and it just sort of seems to happen for no real reason it's not really explained why and it's him fighting a guy with all these police around him and it's just and it's just like what how how has that happened <laughs> no and introduction it, and, it, and, and yeah it's up. literally kind of like well it's not that the, the pieces aren't there it's the fact that they just there's no justification for why that scene is happening and why the police aren't intervening it's just like this is now going to happen because we need the ending of the movie. That is really odd. And it's really bizarre and it's really surreal. Is it jarring? Like, you can't miss it. You're just like, what? Like, and I, I just was kind of like, Ugh. And then this I was, is the thing that like you say, it's a massively successful franchise. So obviously audiences of the time didn't I think, mind so I think much. there's just, I, I, there's that sense in which people probably didn't watch films lots and lots and lots. And, um, and you probably could get away with a bit of a dodgy cut here and there. Uh, there's a spectacular sequence, though, having said that, which is in a desert. There's a sort of a, a meeting of the bad guys and uh, Dan- uh, and Danny Glover's character, Murtar, as they as they kind of do an exchange. And it just happens that Mel Gibson's on the sidelines with a sniper. And just imagine a really sort of flat desert landscape, bright sunshine. The wind is sweeping them all with a kind of dust cloud forming. And then there's this kind of tension. And then you've got a guy with a gun shooting at them and oh, what's wow. going to happen and a grenade and, oh, yeah, and a helicopter suddenly appears. It just kind of works and you're like this is exciting i don't know what's going to go on but what what is surprising is the fact that it doesn't feel the need to play by rules it's very much playing by cinema rules uh, in the sense that these guys seem to be indestructible and they should should clearly get shot and yet they're somehow fine well, because the movie is, needs them to be fine and this is the kind of thing that inspired that run of 90s action movies like including the pierce brosnan bond era where machine guns are out all the time but all they result in are squibs, not even dents in any surface. It's just, you know, flashes and bangs with no one getting hit except the bad guys who just kind of jerk and with a, gr- a grimace and fall It's over. more about the flashing of the gun rather yeah. than the bullets, yeah. One th- the thing that always pops into my head when I think of Lethal Weapon are some of the later entries in the series where Mel Gibson's performance is sort of so odd. I kind of can't believe this is a proper film because he plays it like he's comic relief and he's always making wisecracks and doing his... Uh, what women want, sort of raised eyebrow, 
little quizzical face. You know the one I mean? Yeah, I do know and exactly. Is what that you the mean. case in this first one, or does he play it more seriously? So I've never seen the other Lethal Weapons, and I think I probably will do eventually. Watch watch through them. This film, he is kind of insane. Like oh, yeah. his eyes are wide, and he's kind of constantly staring at people, and he's constantly proving how much of a nut he is because he does things that other people wouldn't even dare because he's he's willing to die, and he's willing. He's not. He doesn't care about his life, and so mm. he acts accordingly. Just justice. Yeah, and <laughs> I think it's kind of like it's Mel Gibson before he's known as Mel Gibson well that is the thing because if you wanted proof that this is a real timepiece in an old movie just the mere fact that this is Mel Gibson being cast as that character proves it because he would never get that role like even a few years down the line that's just not him yeah, I th- I th- he, well, he just clearly is, his career's changed and adapted, and yeah, it's 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 such a funny little timepiece, like you say, and he's got an absolute cracking mullet. I know, yeah. And you've got the uh, the trademark line, you know, have, I'm too old for this. The shirt st- stuff, yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> exactly. And it's in the trailer. It all kind of works, and there's lots of cogs turning that make it fit, and you can see why there'd be four films. Um, but not the best film ever, but not bad. So, what's the grade, ma'am? Is it a classic? I think it's a B. It's good fun, but it's not great. Still worth watch. Yeah, okay. but I wouldn't say watch it as like the movie to watch. I think it's one to watch on an afternoon just for a bit of fun. Okay, right. Well, shall I round us off? Final film, A Late Quartet. Yeah. Tell me what you think. I think we should run the test first. What are you playing on this one? Second violin. Don't you have the urge to play the solo part once in a while? Of course. <laughs> I spoke with Dr. Nader. This difficulty I've been having... Parkinson's, she says. Parkinson's? I'd like the season's first concert to be my farewell. And it's best for the quartet to plan ahead. I don't want to play second violin exclusively anymore. But this isn't about you or me. Yes. No, this yes. is about the quartet. Why don't you have my back on I this? Do. We begin with Beethoven's Opus 131. It has seven movements, and they're all connected. For us, it means playing without pause. I love playing with you. You can't lead a quartet, man. You're not sufficient. You think you're better. Not motivated. It's you just... No resting, no tuning. Do you think it was fun growing up with two woven quartet players with parents who were gone seven months of the year? I did the best that I could. I tried to be a good mother to you. Our instruments must in time go out of tune, each in its own quite different way. I love you more than anything in the world. I made a stupid mistake. Was he maybe trying to point out some cohesion, some unity between random acts of life? Do you really love me? Or am I just convenient? What is it that you want? What is it that you want me to tell you? What are you afraid of? Unleash your passion. Mm, Yeah, so this is Philip Seymour Hoffman, Christopher Walken, Catherine Keener, uh, and a variety of other stars as well, all playing a quartet who, as you heard from the trailer there, are about to start falling apart. You know, a, a classical quartet comes about for various different reasons and it's obviously difficult to keep it together because there's professional tension you know like Phil and I doing this podcast of course there's professional tension and you know relationships get messy there's the high pressure of that level of elite performance blah 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 and in this case the thread that is pulled and begins unraveling that taut sort of canvas is lead cellist and senior player Christopher Walken's emerging Parkinson's which is affecting the way that he's able to play and as he tries to exit the corset all the relationships so that you didn't realise were carefully balanced starts to fall apart (laughs) 
Uh, that's uh, Phil hilariously snoring. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Now, uh, is, unfortunately, carry on, carry Phil, on. unfortunately, you're right, and I wish you weren't right. I decided to watch this film because I quite enjoyed a movie called Quartet. The Billy starring, Connolly one. And yeah, Dustin Billy Hoffman, Connolly. Yeah? Uh, it's Dustin Hoffman in it. I can't remember. I, I, unfortunately, I can't remember the cast probably of that, but another ensemble cast. That one is set in a sort of fictional retirement home for musicians where all these elderly people have wonderful times putting on fantastic choral performances and little ensemble pieces, and they just live out their last days surrounded by people they can relate to. And that, that's a really nice film and explores the themes in quite a fun way. It's you know not groundbreaking, but it's quite enjoyable. I thought I might get more of the same here, but it's nothing of the sort. I think as you watch it, even the actors themselves begin to realise that the the actual material they're working with is it's little dark. more. No, it's not even that. It's little more than a turgid, uh, ridiculously melodramatic Mills and Booney type novel. It's got almost nothing to it. Every single moment of it is about as predictable as possible. And every time the moment arises, the actors play it to the nines, as if what's going on has some kind of deep significance. And for me, it really typifies the way that classical music and classical musicians are often represented in film, as if the mere fact that they're involved in something that is high art and spans the centuries... Makes them profound. Yeah, exactly. It means that every little element and moment of their life uh, carries the same sort of depth and meaning and I reckon this movie is just proof that it doesn't. It doesn't. It didn't teach me anything about relationships. If the music wasn't interesting, none of the scenes were remarkable. The dialogue was very standard. It has this kind of faux realist uh, feel where it's trying to be really gritty and earthy about you know people bearing their souls through their medium, but it isn't. It's totally surface and a complete disappointment. And I can't believe they persuaded Christopher Walken and, Chris and Philip Seymour Hoffman to take part, and Catherine Keener as well, all of whom I expect better, to be honest. Are they good in it? No, <laughs> but only because what they're working with turns out to be really quite trashy. That's what I mean. I feel like you can see it on their faces as the film goes on. They suddenly realise, oh, hang on a minute, this isn't the film that I thought it was. Big fat stinker. Not quite a big fat stinker, just a real disappointment. Like... There's not really anything to enjoy. Actually, I take that back. The thing I enjoyed most of all was seeing Christopher Walken play against type. Because how often do you see him playing a college professor who's refined and not, you know, a caricature? Interesting, not a zany sort of slightly missing a screw. No, in fact, he's the sort of... It turns out he's kind of the glue that holds all of this He's together. the sharp. A very temperate personality. So that was enjoyable to watch. But yeah, I, I found it a cracking bore and a terrible disappointment. So... It's probably getting a C minus from me. What a fantastic one to end on. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Well, you know, I would flip that over with saying if you fancy a bit of a jolly and very low wattage movie, then watch Quartet instead. I enjoyed that. Okay, that's the Billy Colony one, isn't it? Yeah, and I found that much more moving as well, to be honest. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, what a glim, glim, <laughs> glum. <laughs> what a glum, glum ending. Glum. Uh, but listeners, thanks for sticking with us for those four movies. Thanks for tuning in to what we've been watching. Let us know if you've seen any of those films or if you decide to watch any of them. Tell us what you think. Do you agree with us or do you disagree with us? Or do you have a film that you want us to tackle instead? Get in touch on superbellybros at gmail.com or at superbellybros on Twitter. There you go. Thanks very much. Yes, and a final note, uh, if you're enjoying the show, then please do consider dropping us a review, particularly through iTunes. If you've got an Apple ID, just find us on uh, on iTunes, type it into Google, whatever it is, and if you're enjoying it, do drop us a review. Uh, it always helps. Every little helps, as that company exactly. say. Exactly, that's what we'd love. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. Okay, thanks so much. Cheers, see you next week. Bye. Bye.